Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, it's so good to be with you. My name is Andrew, and I want to invite us to consider God's word this morning as we get back into our series entitled Into the Unknown. And we've been considering the first eight chapters of the book of Joshua, and now we're coming to the end of our journey. So I invite you to have a Bible open for that. But before we dive in, I want you to consider this question. What do you do when you royally screw up? What's your tendency when you blow it? Do, are you the kind of person who wallows in guilt and despair? Or are you the kind of person who denies that you ever did wrong and maybe you shift the blame to other people? Uh, or do you send yourself into a kind of probation, like um, almost a sin quarantine, uh, that until you feel like the effects of your screw-up have, have worn off, you count yourself outside of God's grace. Or maybe you just shrug your shoulders and you say, this is how I am. It's never going to change, so why bother? There are all kinds of different ways that we can respond to failure in life and failure in our own walk with Jesus. And some are more productive, some are less productive. And this morning, we're going to consider how God leads his people to, to get back up again, to get back on track in the aftermath of their failure and their sin. If you were with us last week, we saw how uh, there was failure in, in Israel. When they took over Jericho, one man, Achan, and his family, instead of giving all of, of the treasure, uh, the loot from the city to God, they took some for themselves and they hid it in their tent. And we saw how God found him out and judged that sin. Now, I know that sin is a bit of a dirty word, and right now is probably the point where some of you are thinking about hitting that thumbs down button on, on YouTube and exiting the window, because we're talking about sin. But just hold on a sec, because sin is the Bible's language. It's the Bible's way of talking about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. And I know of no other philosophy or religious system that offers such a comprehensive answer to why when we look around in the world, things are so screwed up and, and can tell us why that is and how that is and even point us towards a solution. So hang on, stay with us. We are picking up this morning in the aftermath of Israel's sin in chapter eight, and we're gonna see how God helps his people get back on track. So open your Bible to Joshua chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 1 to 21. So let me read that for us now. Joshua 8, 1 to 21. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack I. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to go and set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. 
I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we've lured them away from the city, for they will say, they're running away from us, as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up and ambush the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you've taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The, the entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of the city. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the desert. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward I the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin toward I. As soon as he did this, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of I looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising in the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites who had been fleeing toward the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and help us in our weakness. When we come before your word, our weakness to understand what you're saying to us and to apply it to our lives. Would you come and do this in us? Open our hearts and minds that these words would sink deep, that you would show us Jesus and how to follow him. We pray this in his mighty name, amen. So this morning, as we consider how it is that God helps his people move on in the aftermath of their sin, the first thing we need to notice in this passage is not so much anything that Joshua or Israel do, but what God does. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is God's action of lifting Joshua up. It's important to realize that when we fail, you know, the thing to do isn't just to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's actually to come to God and, and, and see how God is moving towards us to lift us up. This is how God is acting in the midst of Israel's failure. 
Even in chapter seven, when Israel has been defeated by Ai and they don't yet know of the reason why, they don't yet know of the sin in their camp, Joshua is completely freaking out. And he even says in verse seven, he's falling into despair. He says to God, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? If only we had stayed on the other side of the Jordan. He's under the cloud of despair, even as Israel had uttered those kinds of words over and over again in their history. In Numbers 14, verse 2, the Israelites said a similar thing. It says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses back when Moses was still alive, and the whole assembly said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? We panic and we come under the shadow of fear and discouragement. And Joshua himself, as the leader of the nation, he's not immune from it. And in this moment, when Joshua is freaking out, God says to him in chapter 7, verse 10, Stand up. What are you doing with your face on the ground? Get up, let's address this. And then after God uh, addresses the sin and it's taken care of, what does God say to Joshua in chapter eight, verse one? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Look at the God of the universe coming to Joshua and encouraging him, lifting him up in the aftermath of his failure. See, God doesn't want Joshua to to stay pinned to the ground because of his sin and his failure or the sin of Israel. He doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to lift Joshua up so that he can get on with the task at hand. And you and I need to see this for ourselves in our own life because when we sin, and we sin every day, and sometimes it's, you know, smaller sins, but sometimes we really blow it. There's that danger of falling into despair and we can identify with the fear that can come with it. The fear that, okay, now I'm totally outside God's grace. God is gonna cut me off. He's gonna withdraw his presence, his Holy Spirit. We can identify with the cry of David in Psalm 51 after David uh, had taken another man's wife and and then sent that man to die on the front lines of a battle Uh, and he's convicted of his sin and he turns back to God. In Psalm 51, in anguish almost, he's saying, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And it's such good news that God doesn't do this. Sure, there are consequences for our sin that we have to uh, walk through, but in terms of God's presence and his grace and being counted out of his grace, God does not cut us off. He's merciful. He forgives. He comes near to us and he lifts us up. And in our lives, it is so crucial, especially when we fail to learn to distinguish between the voice of God that seeks to lift us up and call us forward and the voice of the enemy that seeks to keep us rooted and and stuck in the hole we've dug for ourselves. There's a difference there. 
There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is God's work. And then there's the accusation of the enemy. And we need to know the difference. Did you know that the word Satan in Hebrew literally means the accuser? It's actually a title. It's not a proper name, it's a title. And the evil one is called the accuser. He accuses God of not being good and then he accuses us of being outside the goodness of God. There's no way God's gonna take you back. And what the accuser does is he tries to amplify the power of sin over you and keep you stuck in it. To amplify guilt and shame. And this is not the same as the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The voice of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives addresses sin as sin, but he leads us through it again to stand in God's grace. There's nothing pious or spiritual about allowing sin to, to pin you to the ground in misery when God is telling you to get up. And very practically, I just want to mention a few ways that we can distinguish between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of the enemy. First of all, in your life, the conviction of the Holy Spirit will point to something specific that needs addressing. He won't leave you guessing, whereas the accusation of the enemy is usually vague. It's this general sense of despair or disapproval without actually knowing what it is that needs to be addressed. Second of all, the conviction of the Spirit will always lead you to to new life and to move on from sin, whereas the accusation of the enemy seeks to paralyze you and keep you stuck in it. And then lastly, you know that what you are experiencing is the conviction of the Holy Spirit when that conviction pushes you towards God whereas the accusation of the enemy seeks to pull you away from God and and run and hide from God and isolate yourself from God. Very practically, we need to distinguish between conviction and accusation as we follow Jesus into the unknown. So getting back on track when we've failed requires God to do his work of lifting us up and then we need to learn. It requires that we learn. We see this in the text. When you look at the difference between chapter seven and chapter eight. In chapter seven, Joshua does not begin by inquiring of God. He's not listening to God. He's not seeking to know God's thoughts about how they should proceed. He turns to his people, his spies who come and say, oh, this is a piece of cake. We've got this. And then he rushes ahead and then it blows up in his face and he's freaking out. How different is chapter seven from chapter eight? When chapter eight, once again, God is speaking and he's giving instruction and what's Joshua doing? He's listening, he's following, he's obeying. And even while the plan is being executed, while the ambush has been set and the battle is happening, in verse 18, Joshua is paying attention to the Lord and the Lord tells him, gives him the instruction to give the signal for the ambush. There's this constant attention that Joshua is paying to the Lord. And this shows that he's learning from his failure. He's learning from what happened in chapter seven, which is of such crucial importance for us in our lives because if we can learn from our failure, if we can learn from our sin, then it can become an opportunity for our sanctification. 
Sanctification, whoa, that's a huge word. What do I mean by sanctification? Simply put, sanctification is the process that we're all on. When you become a Christian, you're justified, and then you, you launch out on this process of God transforming you and making you like Jesus, making you clean, getting your life in line with his gospel. That's what I mean by sanctification. So when we learn from our failure, it can become an opportunity for God to work on us. He's doing that with Joshua here. And he's doing that with us. And each and every time we sin or we fail, it's an opportunity to learn. Now, I love my kids deeply. But like me and like you, they do some stupid stuff, right? They, they sin, they hurt each other, they right? They're just learning how to move and be in this world in a productive way. And me as their parent, I want to help them get there. It's my job to do that. And one of the things that we try to make a point of doing, say one of our kids is like punched, you know, their sibling in the face or they've lied about something. One of the things we make a point of doing is to debrief. After the matter, to look with them and think through, okay, what led you to do that thing? Um, why did you do it? Why is it not okay? And what can you do differently next time? As a parent, I feel like we can somehow redeem the situation if we can learn from it. And it's the same with us in our lives, in our failure, that God wants to almost redeem our failure and our sin by teaching us and shaping us through it to make us more like his son Jesus. Now, the importance of learning here in, in this text is clear. And in fact, just all over the scriptures, we're, you know, we're called disciples of Jesus. That means to be a student of Jesus. That means we're on this process of lifelong learning. But this text also gives us a specific lesson, a key lesson for us as followers of Jesus. And it's this, we need God. We need God. That's the lesson. If there is one takeaway for you from Joshua 7 and 8, it's this. We need God. So in Jericho, we see they're faced with this impossible task. Jericho was this fortified city, strong. The walls were carved out of bedrock. It was unassailable. And God had Israel do a ridiculous thing, just walk around the city one time a day. And then on the seventh day, they, they do it seven times and they blow their horns and give a shout and the walls come crumbling down. And remember, it's not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho, God did. And then we come to Ai. It's this completely different story because after this amazing victory of Jericho, it's as if God's people say, thanks so much, Lord, we got it from here. We got this. And it goes horribly wrong. And even this small thing, right? When they said, oh, Joshua, it's not a big deal. We'll send 3,000 men. We'll take care of this. No problem. Even this small thing is denied them because they weren't depending on God. They relied on themselves. They couldn't even do this small thing outside of God's power. They became self-reliant so quickly. And, and so do we. It's our knee-jerk reaction, this self-reliance. And the gospel calls us to see so clearly and without a doubt that we don't got this. 
Because the gospel, before we hear the announcement of the good news about the salvation and redemption available in Jesus, we hear the bad news of our sin and our failure. And, And I'm reminded of it every day when I fall into sin. We need God, and that's what our sin exposes. It exposes our need for God. And to get back on track, we need to learn from our failures and the all-important fact of our need for God. Now, I want to say a word about Christian maturity. What does it mean to become a mature Christian? Because often our picture of a mature Christian is is someone who's sinless, you know, or they never screw up, or they're a person who never needs help. They're always calm, collected, and composed. And that actually is not Christian maturity. What the New Testament means by perfection or being perfect is not sinlessness. The word perfect is the word teleos, which means mature or complete. It doesn't mean flawless. And I want to share a quote with you from uh, an old theologian. He's long dead now um, of the Scottish Reformed stream, um, P.T. Forsyth. And I I want you to hear how he talks about perfection in the New Testament and how that might apply to your life. He says this, The perfect in the New Testament are certainly not the sinless. And God, though he wills that we be perfect, has not appointed sinlessness as his object or his goal with us in this world. His object is communion with us through faith. And sin must abide even while it's being conquered as an occasion for faith. Every defect of ours is a motive for faith. To cease to feel defect is to cease to trust. To cease to feel the root of our sin would be to have one motive the less to cast ourselves on God for keeping. Every need is there in order to rouse the need for God, and we need God chiefly. Not as a means to an end, not to satisfy earthly need, to keep the world going or to comfort us or to help us to higher moral levels. We don't need God chiefly as a means to even our own holiness. He says this, we need God for himself. We need God for himself. He himself is the end. We need chiefly communion with him, which is not confined to the perfectly holy but is open to all in faith. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that an incredible definition of Christian perfection or Christian maturity, that our desperate need is not to become sinless in ourselves, but rather to throw ourselves in need and trust in the perfect one. It's not about being perfect. It's about trusting in the one who is, and that is God himself. And so we come to church or, you know, we tune into church or we, we do these uh, uh, spiritual activities not as a way to show everyone how perfect we are, but to connect with this God who loves us, to, to enjoy that communion, to worship him for who he is. It's this amazing thing. So Christian maturity isn't about sinlessness. In the end, it's about love. It's about love, and it's about enjoying the communion of the Father 
through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus brings us into through his death on the cross. This is such good news, friends, that your sin and my sin doesn't mean the end of our communion with God. They don't put us outside of the love of God. The good news is that through the cross of Christ, we are in. We are in God's love. We are in his acceptance. And even more, through the cross and the redemptive work of Christ, even our sin and our failure can be an opportunity for greater trust, greater intimacy with God. And so he says to Joshua, and he says to us who maybe have fallen and we're flat on our face and we're freaking out or we're counting ourselves out of God's grace, he says, get up off your face. Don't be afraid. Don't despair. Because what God ultimately wants for you in your life is not your sinless perfection. He wants you. He wants you and he's gonna take care of the rest as you give yourself to him. Now, there's such a practical lesson in dependence that we're taught in the gospel, and I want to share this with you um, so that you can take this with you, a practical action step each day as we go out from here. So how do we get up again in the aftermath of our sin and of our failure? How do we take steps towards throwing off sin in our lives? Here it is. Paradoxically, the only way to become free from sin is to know you've already been freed from it by the cross of Christ. The only way to be freed from sin is is to live in light of the gospel and what Jesus has done and already freeing you from the power of sin in your life. There's such a great flaw in so much of our spirituality and how we go about our days in how we allow ourselves um, to, to focus on sin more than we do on the redemptive work of Christ. We focus on sin and we give sin the greater opportunity to define us and to tell us where we stand with God rather than the cross of Christ. Here's how it plays out. We look at our own experience. And, you know, each day we sin. Maybe this morning you yelled at your kids. You're like, just sit quietly on the couch and go to church, right? Um, maybe you swore at someone on the 401 yesterday. Whatever it is, we look to our experience to tell us where we stand with God. And, and we sin, and so we go, oh, I must be outside of God's grace. I must be outside of Christ. But the gospel tells us to look first and foremost in faith to God's word to define us and to tell us where we stand with God. It's to look in faith to what God has done and what he says about us. And it's a justifying word. It's an atoning word. It's a redeeming word. The word of Christ. And to have that word of Christ and his cross work its way into our experience. It's not your experience that defines you. It's the word of God that defines you. And so practically in your life, Paul says this to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter six, he says, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon it so, consider yourselves dead to sin. Even though you keep on sinning, consider yourselves dead to it. So just like taxes don't apply to dead people, so sin and its power don't apply to you because you've died with Christ. 
and you've been raised with him in newness of life. This is Paul's language about conversion and being born again. What happens when we believe in Jesus? It's not just saying a prayer. It's not just having a faith-filled thought. When we believe in Jesus, something happens. And you're united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And it, it brings about this entirely new situation, a new life in Christ. And being in Christ means you're no longer under the power of sin. So as much as we need to pay attention to God's voice encouraging us and lifting us because that's what he does, we need to realize that fundamentally in the gospel, God has already lifted us out of sin and death through the cross of Christ. He's already done it. And so when we do sin, we need to take it seriously. We need to repent but we need to take even more seriously the cross and the sufficiency of the cross to to cover our sin, to atone for it, and to lead us into the freedom and joy of being forgiven children of God. It's to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ and to let him lift us up. Brothers and sisters, you might in this moment be flat on your face, reeling from your failure. Hear God's word, get up. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Put your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you that you are the God who lifts us up, that you call us to rise when we fall and repent and turn to you, that you are the God who who teaches us, that you are the God who is reshaping us and remaking us. Lord Jesus, give us faith to follow you. And dare I say, give us your faith, Lord Jesus. For what we need, God, is you yourself, your life in us. We need communion with you. So Lord, would you open our hearts to take that step and enter into that communion for the first time this morning or in a deeper way. And Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.